On Thursday afternoon, New York Mayor Bill de Blasio, who is a certifiable moron, tweeted about the wonders of the left's favorite new New York icon, the bronze statue of a fearless girl who stands in defiance of the even more famous statue of a Wall Street bull. De Blasio tweeted, quote, Unlike the charging bull, which has become a symbol of Wall Street, fearless girl is be a beacon for the fight against injustice. Here are a few things you need to know. One, the fearless girl statue is funded by a hedge fund. State Street Global Advisors is behind the sculpture. State Street Global Advisors manages $2.5 trillion in assets. The notion that it funded a statue to rail against capitalism is idiotic. State Street isn't just representative of Wall Street. It invests in Wall Street on the most general level by putting all money into funds that track the performance of the indices. As Wall Street goes, so too does fearless girl. Two, the hedge fund has few female executives. State Street Global Advisors has 28 high-level executives, according to the New York Daily News. Five are female. Total. Three, employment in New York relies heavily on Wall Street. According to the New York Federal Reserve, the financial services sector represented 35% of all paid income in the city of New York as of 2000, and more than one in 10 people employed in New York City were employed on Wall Street. The fearless girl statue is a bit of stupid virtue signaling by a firm looking for some good publicity. De Blasio has embraced it because he is a stupid man. But here is what de Blasio should understand. If the bull actually walks away from New York and the fearless girl remains... The bull is going to be like all the jobs. It'll just be gone in the distance. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. Uh, people on the left, like de Blasio, are so stupid. But it doesn't matter. I love that they're obsessed with this statue that was put up by a hedge fund because they think that it's against hedge funds because stupid. We'll talk about that. We'll also talk about, I have a theory. I'm developing a theory of what exactly Trump is doing in foreign policy, which is good because no one really has a theory as to what is going on there. There are multiple working theories, but we will discuss them. I think it's a theory that will make no one happy and yet everyone happy, just like most of the things that I say. But we'll get to that in just a second. First, I want to say thank you to our advertisers over at Mac Weldon. So if you are in search of the best underwear, the best sweatshirts, the best socks and hoodies and sweatpants, you need to go over to MacWeldon.com, M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N, MacWeldon.com. I'm wearing Mac Weldon underwear right now, and they are spectacular. The underwear are just terrific, and uh, they actually have a line of silver underwear and shirts that are antimicrobial. They're naturally antimicrobial, so they don't stink as much as your other clothes, which is exactly what you would like. And they are super-duper comfortable. They also hold up really well over time. So I've been wearing you know, Mac Weldon underwear for months at this point. Not that I change them nightly, guys. But I do. But they, you know, they've gone through the wash a bunch of times. They don't fall apart. Uh, they are really, really durable. They remain just as comfortable as the first time I put them on. Uh, and uh, their clothes are just first-rate. MacWeldon.com. Use that promo code Shapiro, and you get 20% off your first order. Use the promo code Shapiro at MacWeldon.com. And they look good when you go out. They look good when you're in. Uh, and they are the most comfortable clothes I own. MacWeldon.com, promo code Shapiro. Get 20% off your first order. Again, that's promo code Shapiro at MacWeldon.com for 20% off your first order. Okay, well, we have a lot coming up on the show today. We have the mailbag that's coming up at the end of the show, which is why you need to subscribe. If you subscribe, you can be part of the mailbag. But don't worry, I'll make that pitch later. Also, we are going to be having... We are going to be having a guest on. His name is Fadi Al-Qadi. He is a Middle East and Northern Africa human rights advocate. And uh, he, I want to talk to him because he thinks that the United States has an obligation to take in Syrian refugees if we're going to bomb Assad. Uh, and I would like to have that discussion with him. So I look forward to that. But we begin today with the big news. There are two pieces of big military news. 
Big piece of military news number one is that Trump is now threatening North Korea. Uh, it's unclear what the threat actually is. So we moved the U.S. naval carrier and aircraft carrier into the waters off North Korea, and there's been rumors that we are going to preemptively hit them if they were going to drop some sort of nuclear test. Uh, that seems to me a wild rumor. The Trump administration has basically denied it because that could precipitate World War III. What folks need to understand about North Korea is that North Korea has like 20,000 uh, 20, missiles that are aimed, 20,000 rockets that are aimed directly at Seoul in South Korea, and there are 10 million people who live in Seoul. So if something should go wrong in North Korea, then Seoul is immediately under severe attack and probably hundreds of thousands of people die. So it's very important that we handle this whole thing very carefully. The other, you know, the other sort of response has been that, that the United States is going to take some sort of retaliatory strike against the North Koreans if they should test a nuclear weapon uh, to demonstrate that we're not going to stand for this kind of stuff anymore. Uh, it, you know, I, I think that Kim Jong-un has enough wherewithal to understand that if he goes to war with us, then we'll wipe him off the map in, in five seconds flat, and he would like to preserve his rule, obviously. So, you know, I, I think that his kind of crazy act, I'm going to act crazy so that people leave me alone, uh, I don't think that that's going to work very much longer because people understand he wants to stay in power. He's not going to launch a preemptive war on the United States that finishes him completely. That would be a foolish move in the extreme, and he's foolish, and but he's, but he's rational. He's foolish but rational. The Chinese are now applying pressure to North Korea. They're saying that they're going to cut off a lot of their oil exports to North Korea, if North Korea uh, tries to test a nuclear bomb. So good on the Trump administration for pushing on that. The, the other piece of big news yesterday was that the U.S. military in Afghanistan dropped what is known as the mother of all bombs. First of all, I think that all bombs should have nicknames. And so I think this is awesome. It's called the mother of all bombs. Apparently, Russia has something they like to call the father of all bombs. So if you ever got them together, they'd make lots of little bombs. It'd be really cute. But the mother of all bombs is uh, is apparently a, a massive, massive piece of ordnance. It's like 11 tons of TNT. Uh, it has a blast radius of up to a mile. And um, so we dropped it in the middle of nowhere, Afghanistan. And we killed 36 ISIS fighters. We took out a bunch of their tunnel systems. We took out a bunch of their ordnance. All of that is good. And here is Donald Trump praising the use of Moab. Take some pictures, okay? Yes, sir. Thank you all very much. How about that bomb, Very, very proud of the people. Another, uh, really, another successful job. We're very, very proud of our military. Just like we're proud of the folks in this room, we are so proud of our military, and it was another successful event. Did you authorize it, sir? Uh, everybody knows exactly what happened. So, and what I do is I authorize my military. We have the greatest military in the world, and they've done a job as usual. So, we have given them total authorization, and that's what they're doing. And frankly, that's why they've been so successful lately. If you look at what's happened over the last eight weeks and compare that really to what's happened over the last eight years, you'll see there's a tremendous difference. A tremendous difference. So. We have incredible leaders in the military, and we have incredible military, and we are very proud of them. And this was another very, very successful mission. So this Thank is this is good Trump. When Trump says this sort of stuff, it makes people in the military uh, feel good. It, may, it heightens morale. Uh, this actually was in the works since the Obama administration. So for months, they'd been considering whether to use the Moab. Every time I think of Moab, I also think of Ammon and the Jebusites and, and all the other biblical tribes. But the, the use of the Moab was not something that, that Trump initiated. It was something where the Defense Department came to him and they said, can we use this thing? Are you okay with that? We'd like to. And he said, sure, go for it. And that's 
that's the difference between Trump and Obama. You know, Obama had to agonize for apparently days and days and days about whether to go get bin Laden. I don't think that's something that Trump would agonize over very much. And that's something that is obviously a very good thing. Charles Krauthammer came out. He says, look, Trump is returning America to world leadership. Obviously, he's willing to be aggressive in his use of military force. Well, we don't really know what the Trump doctrine is yet, but he's winning, isn't he? Yes, I welcome this. I'm, I'm not an America firster. I thought it was a mistake to enunciate a, a doctrine in the inaugural address, which is we're coming home. It scared the bejeebies out of our allies in NATO when he talked about it being obsolete. It scared every, in the Middle East, the uh, Gulf Arabs were scared to death. I think this is reassuring that we are returning to the classic American definition where we include our allies and the most important, we accept world leadership in a way that had not been accepted by Obama and seemed to be not accepted by Trump, the candidate. Well, that, that, this is what's confusing as all hell to a lot of the Trump supporters, and we'll get to that in just a minute. Chris Wallace says that what's very clear here is that Trump has been basically humiliating Obama by being as quick as he is to use military force when called for. And this is a president who's sending a message that he's, as opposed to Barack Obama, willing to project and very comfortable projecting the use of U.S. force anywhere he feels is necessary. And and again, as I say, I think that Donald Trump has shown a a willingness to project uh, American force, uh, what, less than 100 days into office, that we certainly didn't see with Barack Obama, who the Trump administration openly dismisses as paralysis through analysis. Okay, so, you know, all of this is, is sort of, I think, a little bit a little bit early, not just because, you know, uh, not, not because I think Trump is wrong in doing what he's doing. I think he's exactly right in doing what he's doing. But I think people are trying to graft an ideology onto Trump that he may not hold, and it's a little bit premature. But I'll discuss that in just a minute. First, I want to bring on our special guest today. Fadi Al-Qadi is a Middle East and Northern Africa human rights advocate, uh, and he's written about what he thinks the United States ought to do uh, with regard to Syria and, and what the United States has an obligation to do with regard to Syrian refugees. Uh, Mr. Al-Qadi, thank Thanks so much for joining the Ben Shapiro Show. Oh, thank you for having me. So you write uh, that we salute, uh, you have a statement in which you say, we salute those that oppose discriminating against refugees or discriminating against individuals because of their race or religion. You think that the Trump administration is making a huge mistake um, by not allowing in refugees. You also are not in favor of Trump's strikes in Syria. So let's start with Trump's Trump's strikes in Syria. You say that that President Trump's strikes in Syria violated international law, and you say accountability is the answer. What sort of accountability are you talking about if nobody's actually holding Assad to account? Well, that's exactly has been the problem for the past six years, whether the uh, previous former American administration was part of the problem or the solution is, is not really the issue. But there was never been a discussion, a conversation, an international conversation about how to bring Assad and everyone else who has committed atrocities in, in this particular conflict. So I... I mean, to me, it's just seemed that there is a sort of a missing, um, a, a missing connection here. Mr. Trump's, uh, I mean, during the presidential campaign, he has been um, 
sort of, uh, I mean, I'm going to say it, he has been demonizing, you know, the uh, the refugee population, specifically, you know, those refugees coming from um, uh, countries for, with a Muslim majority, and uh, the Syrians are the same. Um, it, it seemed to me that the, there is a sort of an inconsistent policy in terms of, you know, dealing, um, you know, with sending, you know, missiles to hit Assad, but at the same time, not finding Finding the linkage to this to this problem, the problem is that these refugees really fled a country that is has been seeing atrocities and massacres over the past six years. And if you denied that, if you fundamentally denied that, you just you don't have an excuse to send these missiles to punish uh, a, a dictator or a, or a, or a, a brutal uh, a brutal uh, governor. So, and it's yeah. So, uh, so I want to I want to ask you a question about this because this has been in a contention made by a lot of people that it's fundamentally inconsistent, as you say, for the Trump administration to fire missiles at, a, at an airbase in Syria while also banning Muslim refugees from Syria into the United States. But isn't it true that, I mean, there are 50 plus Muslim countries all around the world uh, that have the capacity to take in refugees. Turkey obviously has taken in well over a million Syrian refugees. Uh, why do you think that it's the obligation of Western countries like the United States or countries in Europe to take in Syrian refugees who it's, I mean, let's, let's face it, it's impossible to vet their backgrounds because the government has no records and we can't trust the government anyway. Uh, we don't know who who's coming in. Uh, there have been serious issues with with crime and some in instances of terrorism in Europe uh, due to refugees, not necessarily from Syria, but from places like Libya. Um, you know, why does the West have an obligation to take in everybody, or does the West have an obligation to take in everybody on Earth who is in some sort of dire human rights strait when an alternative might be available in terms of Muslim countries taking in these folks? Well, Ben, everybody has a responsibility to take in refugees if they can and if they're willing. And uh, I mean, I live in a country, we're talking now, you know, from, from Jordan, who has also is a neighboring country to Syria and has taken, you know, um, approximately a million and a half. Lebanon is another neighboring country which has taken more than it actually takes. Uh, Turkey has taken so much refugees uh, in, the, in the past few years. So... In, in, in the sense of the responsibility, it's everyone's responsibility. And the problem about the neighboring countries, you just they have they have been really flooded. Their infrastructure cannot sort of absorb extended, you know, uh, waves of refugees. Uh, and it's just the matter of fact that we cannot sustain. And I think this is the key word. We cannot sustain the neighboring countries to keep on receiving more refugees or else or otherwise they will collapse and we don't want them to collapse. And there comes the, the sort of like uh, the issue of Europe and the United States and Canada and everyone else. You have a very true point about why other Muslim countries like Saudi, the UAE have not really mobilized you know, uh, the, these, you know, uh, have not provided access to these refugees in the past. But let's just face it, they are also on the, some of these Gulf countries are on the forefront of providing substantial financial aid to a UN agency that is providing aid to these 
to these refugees, right. which so, is, by the way, Ben, which is, by the way, another problem that Mr. Trump is 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 is, is facing in terms of this inconsistency. When now we're talking about helping the Syrians and recognizing that a massacre has happened and something needs to happen, but at the same time he cuts aid to the World Food Program Agency, which basically provides food. But he's, he's, know, but, he's but he's talked about he's talked about increasing aid pretty dramatically for refugee programs, specifically Syrian refugee programs in the area by sponsoring refugee camps in places like Turkey. You know, one of the questions that I have here is that you, you say that every country has sort of an equal obligation to take in refugees in human rights situations. Obviously, that has not been true historically. Uh, obviously, you know, to take a, a to take an easy example, the Palestinian refugee crisis has been on has been on the hook for 70 years plus. Uh, and Jordan took in many Palestinian refugees and then pushed them out to Lebanon. Lebanon pushed out those Palestinian refugees uh, to to Tunis. Uh, so the, the the issue of refugee the, the the problem that I have here with with a lot of the talk about who should take in refugees is it assumes that all cultures are equally malleable and assimilate easily to the cultures that are supposed to take them in. It it seems to me that it should be easier for Jordan to absorb refugees from Syria than it would be for France to absorb refugees from Syria, given cultural differences, which do make a difference in terms of how people have grown up, what, what form of Islam people practice, because not all forms of Islam are, are equally peaceful. Um, you know, the, the idea that you have to take in a refugee in order to oppose the slaughter of civilians, I don't think that that's, I don't see how that follows, in other words. Why, would, why, why is it bad that Trump is trying to bomb Assad and stop Assad from committing gas attacks if Trump doesn't take in Syrian refugees? It doesn't seem like there's a connection between the two. You may think that he's wrong not to take in Syrian refugees, but why is it now bad for him to bomb the airfield from which Assad is launching gas attacks? Well, let's put it this way, Ben. Uh, the, the issue about sort of, you know, the global responsibility to sort of protect those who flee atrocities, I, I you know, I, I just, I don't think it's just a moral issue. And I, and I'm not quite sure that it is sort of, you know, the issue about cultural differences can substantiate the issue of, of the need to protection. We have also to recognize that in some what you just said or referred to as culture, there may not be an adequate sort of structure to provide protection to these to those people who are fleeing uh, massacres and atrocities. And I sort of think the neighboring countries have sort of grown to a point where they can no longer provide such a, such protection. So I think that the main difference here is that some countries, some cultures, as you referred, have more sort of advanced, more of substantiated structures that, you know, that makes them capable of providing such protection. Uh, The other point, I think, is that when we talk about, you know, Mr. Trump's administration sort of sending these messages to uh, punish Assad, they they actually do not punish Assad. I think what we need from Mr. Trump is a sort of a clear policy on accountability. And, you know, what we refer to as being accountability is just to find sort of a venue, an international venue to prosecute those who are responsible for crimes. This could stop, you know, atrocities and massacres. Well, Russia, Russia would never stand for that, obviously, and that's one of the big problems here in the international community is that unilateral action becomes necessary when there are international actors who won't cooperate in all of this. But thank you for your time. I really do appreciate the perspective that this Fadi Al-Qadi, he's a Middle East and Northern Africa human rights advocate. Thank you so much. Appreciate all the way from Jordan. Thank you. Thank you, Ben. Okay, so 
back to what's going on with regard to the, the Trump administration policy here. So obviously Trump has been very militaristic, his use of Moab, uh, his use of the uh, his his militarism with regard to Assad. So what exactly is going on here? So I have a working theory that I'm going to tell you about. But first, I have to say thank you to our sponsors over at Stamps.com. So if you are in need of postage, and you are if you run a business, then Stamps.com is the best way to do it. You go to Stamps.com, you can print right out on your desk all the postage that you need. You can stick it on an envelope, you can put it on a sticker, and then take that sticker and stick it on an envelope. Uh, you can you can have a, a digital scale. They'll ship you a free digital scale right now when you go over to Stamps.com and click on the microphone at the top of the page and type in that promo code Shapiro, Stamps.com, promo code Shapiro. Uh, you don't have to go to the post office and stand in line ever again. If you go to Stamps.com right now, if you go there, then you get a four-week trial, including free postage and a digital scale. If you go to Stamps.com, go to that upper corner, click on the microphone, and type in Shapiro, and you get that deal. Again, you know, one of the most annoying things in life is having to stand in line uh, at the post office and, uh, and wait for those stamps, so you don't have to do that anymore. Plus, again, that digital scale means you can weigh everything right there on your desk. Okay, so here is my theory about what's going on with the Trump administration foreign policy. There are two theories that are that have been put out there. Theory number one is the theory that President Trump is basically being co-opted by all of the evil neocons in the administration, that, that it's basically Reince Priebus and it, it's, it's, it's General Mattis and it's, it's all these members of the administration who are neocons, Nikki Haley, uh, all of the interventionists, the globalist cucks who are taking advantage of President Trump and President Trump is basically being led astray by these people. This has been the, the, the line that's been taken by people like Ann Coulter, uh, who is never willing to take Trump on directly, but instead will sort of blame his action on the people who surround him. So theory number one is that Trump is being co-opted by the establishment. Here's Ann Coulter basically expressing that theory. And for that region of the world, Assad uh, is one of the, the better leaders. Um, there are probably only one or two that are better than he. He's not even like a Saddam Hussein murderous thug. Um, he helped well, us after 9-11, giving us intelligence. It's, it's a very strange thing we've done here. And I feel like it is such a departure from what Trump said on the campaign trail well, and he, in 2013 on his Twitter feed. Right. No, that, that's... Okay, and, and so she's sort of saying it's a departure. And Roger Stone, who's sort of this conspiracy-minded guy who worked closely with Trump, uh, he says that, that Trump is being co-opted and Steve Bannon is basically being attacked by all of the neocon globalist cucks. You're a Bannonite. Well, I'm, you're, a, fr you're, I'm a friend of You're Steve a friend Bannon. of his, and, and you, I think, share a little bit more of his ideology than perhaps that would be Mr. Kushner say. or Mr. Priebus. Uh, if he's getting elbowed out, what does that tell you? Well, it tells me a couple things. First of all, I think Steve made an error by not spending any of his political capital to bring other Trumpites and non-globalists into the White House circle. So now... He didn't do a good job staffing the White House. He's alone. Reince Priebus and Jared Kushner did. Yes. And so therefore, now he's alone and he's surrounded. I think unfairly, perhaps, he uh, takes the rap for uh, the fiasco surrounding health care. Maybe Reince should be wearing a bit more of that. Uh, uh, the travel ban uh, is also probably counting against him, although I would argue that in Donald Trump's case, he only suffers politically, not when he's defeated, but when he stops trying. Okay, so again, the idea is that Bannon has been surrounded by this cabal and they're taking advantage of, of Trump. So that's theory number one, is that Trump is being co-opted by this evil cabal. It's not Trump's fault, he's just being co-opted by this evil cabal. Theory number two is is 
a little bit different. Theory number two is that Donald Trump basically just reacts, that, that something happens and Donald Trump reacts and there is no plan and he's just acting how Donald Trump has always acted, which is he reacts to the news that's on TV. And there's a fair bit of evidence to support this basic case. Here's Sean Spicer saying that basically Eric Trump and Ivanka Trump pushed Trump into reacting to the gas attack in Syria. There's no question that um, Ivanka and others weighed into him as, as you know, uh, it was asked earlier, Halley asked it, um, that when he himself saw images, he was very, very moved. And I think Ivanka and others, frankly, I, I don't think that there's uh, many humans that came into contact with the president uh, during that window of time that said, did you see those images on television? Um, so I don't, you know, I, I think there was a, a widespread um, acknowledgement that the images and the actions that have been taken uh, were horrific and required action. Okay, so, you know, the, the story is that apparently Ivanka came to Trump and she said, it's really bad what's happening in Syria. And he said, great, let's bomb it. That's basically how the story went. And then here is Trump describing the moment that he chose to make the decision to, to fire the missiles at, at Assad in Syria. I was sitting at the table. We had finished dinner. We're now having dessert. And we had the most beautiful piece of chocolate cake that you've ever seen. And President Xi was enjoying it. And I was given the message from the generals that the ships are locked and loaded. What do you do? And we made a determination to do it. So the missiles were on the way. Does that seem like someone with a worldview? I was sitting there eating a piece of the most beautiful chocolate cake. Let me tell you, this chocolate cake was just big league, big league chocolate cake. And the president of China loved it. Loved. L-U-V-E-Y. Loved. I mean, it, does this sound like somebody with a plan? So I guess the, the second theory here is that Trump just sort of lashes out. Here is my theory. My theory is that both are true. Basically, Trump reacts to a certain thing. And then Trump responds to the applause based on that reaction. So if he reacts, so it, follow, the, follow the course of his campaign. Basically, he, he leads off his campaign by talking about Mexican immigrants coming across the border and committing crimes. And a certain cadre of people cheer and love it, and they think it's just great how at least Trump is saying this sort of thing. And Trump responds to them, and he panders to their applause, because Trump is motivated by one thing and one thing mostly, and that is love of Trump. If you love Trump, you are great, right? Trump has said this about in interviews about Vladimir Putin. Putin likes me. That means he's okay, right? This has been Trump's sort of theory, his working theory of the world for 70 years. If you like Trump, that makes you good. If you don't like Trump, that makes you bad. So something happens like a gas attack in Syria. Trump responds because Ivanka says it's bad. He says, okay, let's fire some missiles. And then who's going to respond positively to that? Well, it's not going to be all of the people who backed him. It's not going to be the alt-right group. It's not going to be the isolationists. It's not going to be Pat Buchanan. It's going to be all of the you know, more interventionist, hawkish people on foreign policy. Those people will cheer him. And so then he falls into their thrall because he starts pandering to their applause. Now, Ivanka and Jared are leading the crew instead of Bannon. So Bannon was leading the crew when everybody was applauding him for his trillion-dollar infrastructure package and for his talk about how he was going to put up tariffs. That was Bannon's doing, and so Bannon was the guy applauding the loudest, so that's when Trump was friends with him. Now Bannon doesn't like what he just did in terms of reaction. 
And so now he's fallen under the sway of Ivanka and Jarrett, at least up to the point where he does something Ivanka and and Jared don't like, and then he turns on them in favor of another ideology. Now, what does that mean for the future of the Trump administration? We'll talk about that in just a second. But for that, you have to go to dailywire.com and become a subscriber. $8 a month makes you a subscriber over at dailywire.com. We do have a live mailbag today. We are doing a special Friday mailbag here on the Ben Shapiro Show. You can be part of it. You can send your questions in live right now if you subscribe. Move really fast. Go there. And if you get an annual subscription, you get a free copy of the Arroyo fictional border film set, uh, obviously on the southern border by Jeremy Boring, uh, all about the it's, uh, it's, it's about a rancher who's trying to defend his land against the encroachment of drug cartels into his land. Really, really good uh, action flick, and you can go check it out over at dailywire.com, get an annual subscription. Plus, make sure you go over to iTunes or SoundCloud and subscribe, and then leave us a review. We always appreciate it. We are the largest conservative podcast in the nation. So what does it mean if Trump's basic working theory of foreign policy and his presidency generally is something happens, gut-level reaction, whoever cheers, he's now friends with? If that's his actual policy, if his actual policy is that, then that's actually kind of dangerous. People were saying that it's good that Trump is a pragmatist, that he's an ideological pragmatist because he takes each issue as it comes. He's not subject to the whims of ideologues on either side. But that's not how things work in the real world. The way things work in the real world, when there is chaos, the most organized force takes over. When there's any sort of chaotic situation, the most organized force takes over. So in Libya, when you get rid of Gaddafi, the most organized force, the terrorist groups, rush in and they take over. In Congress, if there's chaos, the most organized group rushes in and takes over. And when there's a president who doesn't have any sort of ideology, the most organized group will rush in and take over when he just sort of reacts gut level and then responds to the cheering. And that's a dangerous thing because it means that he is subject to co-option. It means that he does react gut level on issues like this. But he is subject to co-option, particularly by his family. Now, did anyone vote for Trump thinking Ivanka was going to be president? Did anyone vote for Trump thinking Jared was going to be president, for goodness sake? The answer, of course, is no. Conservatives voted for Trump thinking Pence was going to be president, and Trumpians voted for Trump thinking Trump was going to be president. But the truth is that Trump makes the occasional call, and then he delegates his ideological responsibilities to whoever cheers for him the loudest. This is my working theory of Trump, and I think so far it's actually been borne out by his activity. That doesn't mean that Trump doesn't have an agent, the power of agency. He doesn't have the power of, of changing his mind. But it does mean that he is subject to people with actual worldviews. People with no worldviews tend to fall prey to people with worldviews. And someone with no worldview is willing to, as they say, if, you're, if you stand for nothing, you will fall for anything. And there is some of that to Trump. Now, right now, I think that he made a good move in Syria, and I hope that he falls under the sway of people who have actual theories about what to do with Syria and North Korea. But if you are a Trump fan who is more isolationist, you have to look at this and you have to be, you have to be a little bit upset. And if you are a, a, a more hawkish person on foreign policy, be cautious before you start saying that Trump is suddenly embracing a hawkish foreign policy, because the next time he changes his mind, he falls right back under the sway of Buchanan and company. This is the problem with Trump. He will be under the sway of others. They will push him to, to double down on whatever it is that he's thinking at the current time. But at no point is, does he have any allegiance to a real ideology except the ideology of those who cheer for him the most ardently. And there, it's sort of a, an almost King Lear situation where everybody is expected, the daughters are expected to come and, and say to King Lear how wonderful he is. And the one person who doesn't ends up being thrown out of the kingdom. 
Uh, you know, th- there is that that feel, and that's not a good way to run a presidency, even if I like a lot of the things that Trump is doing right now. So hopefully I'm wrong. Hopefully Trump is actually developing uh, an ideology. Hopefully he's developing a worldview. I find that unlikely because he's never operated off an ideology or a worldview other than personal loyalty to him and responding to applause. Okay, time for some things I like and then some things that I hate, and then we'll do the mailbag. Uh, but first, I want to say thank you to our friends over at Blinkist. So this is an awesome service. I'm really a big fan of this service. It's Blinkist.com slash Ben. So Blinkist is an app. You can download it on your phone. And what it does is it has an entire series of books. If you're somebody who likes to read like I do, it has an entire series of books, but it doesn't provide you the the text of the book. What Blinkist does is it instead sums up the main points of the books and what they like to call and what they call blinks. So if you are listening to a book by Jared Diamond, you're not going to get the entire book of Jared Diamond's gun germs, uh, guns, uh, germs and steel. Instead, what you're going to get is a summary of each chapter. Right? Not, not a full-scale, detailed something. You can get the main points, and that's what Blinkist is great for. The idea is you get all the information, or at least the most important information, I should say, from the most popular nonfiction books, and you get, and you get all of it in 10 minutes or less, basically, because you know, depending on the speed you're listening to it, uh, you can get it done really quickly. It's great for me. I was using this over the weekend. I listened to three or four books on economics uh, where they just sum up the main points of the books on economics. So instead of having to wade through 300 pages of heavy economics speak in order to come away with basically the same points, I get the whole thing in 15 minutes. Uh, really just fantastic. You can read four books in one day because each one of them is, is 15 minutes long. They have 2,000 of the best-selling nonfiction books transformed into these powerful packs that you can read or listen to in just 15 minutes. Uh, you can use your smartphone, obviously, same smartphone you're probably listening to Ben Shapiro show on right now. As I say, Why Nations Fail, which is a 500-page book. Really good book. I recommend it highly. It's a really good book. But you can listen to the main points of that book in 15 minutes and save yourself eight hours of reading, or you can use this as sort of a teaser trailer for the book. Super cool service. I downloaded it myself. I've been using it regularly. Blinkist.com slash Ben. You get a free trial period or three months free when you buy a yearly plan. So use that slash Ben so it lets them know that we sent you, and also so that you get that free trial period or three months free. Blinkist is B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Blinkist.com slash Ben. As I say, I can't recommend this more highly. It is super cool. Uh, it's got some of my favorite books on there. It's got the flow, which is all about the, the which is all about how um, you are your most productive self when you are when you're working, and that's in consonance with with what you're trying to do. Um, it's they have all these great books. It's so cool. Um, and uh, I, again, can't recommend the service highly enough. Blinkist.com/slash/ben. Download the app uh, and make sure you use the promo code, and you get a free trial period or three months free with a yearly plan. Okay, so things I like. So uh, because I did yesterday a sociobiology book, basically, uh, the, this book, Sapiens, uh, I decided I'd follow that up with the classic on the, on the subject. That is On Human Nature by E.O. Wilson. Uh, this book uh, won the, the Pulitzer Prize in 1978. It is overstated. It basically, there was a theory going around in the 60s and 70s that human beings were a blank slate, that we were an unmarked blank slate, and that we could be basically twisted however we wanted by an education system that could mold us. This is sort of Marxist theory of humanity, that we were clay to be molded by the society around us. And then E.O. Wilson comes along and he says, no, that's not true at all. Genetics of human beings have a major impact on behavior. Now, E.O. Wilson actually takes that so far that he basically said he's a determinist. He says that we are determined by our biology in conjunction with the environment. We're not malleable at all is sort of what E.O. Wilson contends. He goes too far in that direction. He denies the existence of free will, for example. Um, and uh, it's, it's a fascinating book and an interesting book, and it gets into a whole debate 
over the, the he invented the, the so-called field of sociobiology, which is the idea that all societies and sociologies are, in the end, outgrowths of your biology. Uh, this has become such a popular notion on the left that the, the idea is that if you're born this way, there's nothing you can do to change your behavior. So... The, if you go too far in either direction, you're in trouble. If you think that human beings are innately malleable and they can be changed in any direction, that's false. And if you think that human beings cannot be changed at all or can't make their own decisions, that's also false. E.O. Wilson pushes too hard in that second direction. But the book is really interesting and has some theories that I think are, are – he overstates the science a little bit. But I think that the theories are interesting about what human beings are capable of and, and where you're pushing up against nature itself. Okay, other things that I like. So – I just, I can't get over 4chan going after Shia LaBeouf. I just think this is the greatest story in human history. I love it so much. So apparently, uh, Shia LaBeouf and his art collective, the He Will Not Divide Us collective, they have now tried to uh, go to three separate cabins uh, in an Arctic region in northern Finland, and they wanted to live stream their faces into a museum in Helsinki to communicate with museum goers. And it was supposed to be hashtag alone together. That they were supposed to just be able to, no one was going to be able to find them. I don't know why Shia LaBeouf keeps trying to do this. He's one of the most famous people on earth. I don't understand why he keeps trying to do this. Um, also, as we all know, Shia LaBeouf alone in the woods becomes a cannibal, uh, as we know from, from the songs and myths about it. In any case, the 4chan people tracked him down in less than a day. So apparently <laughs> he was hiding in a cabin on the Finland-Sweden border, um, and it's being rented for the same period as the art project, and the chairs depicted in the photos that Shia LaBeouf sent out match the ones in Shia LaBeouf's streams. Uh, and so he, th- this is, I think, the fourth time they've tracked down Shia LaBeouf. So they tracked down his, uh, first they, they wrecked his He Will Not Divide Us exhibit in New York. Then they tracked down his flagpole in the middle of nowhere, Tennessee, I think it was. Uh, and then they tracked it down in Liverpool, England. They tracked it down again. Uh, and now they have tracked down his cabin in the middle of the woods. So I think the, the message here is don't try to hide things from the 4chan people because they will find it. It is hilarious and I love it very much. Okay, time for some things that I hate. So... So the the ubiquity of Trump is now such that everybody is trying to jump onto the Trump bandwagon in terms of publicity. One example of this is there's a new boxing promo. Uh, there's, a, there's a big fight coming up um, between two fighters who are from Mexico, uh, Cinco de Mayo in, in Las Vegas. There's a, a fight between uh, Canelo Alvarez and Julio Cesar Chavez, so a very big fight. These are both very famous fighters. And here is what the promo looks like. Boxing's biggest star. Son of a legend. what's going on is these two boxers and they are charging through a wall that's obviously on the border it's supposed to be the trump wall oscar de la hoya who's one of the most overrated boxers in history uh, he said that he was targeting trump he said the idea of a wall was a direct hit to donald trump obviously given what's taking place and given the comments trump has really made has made had really impacted many people and have rubbed many people the wrong way what does that have to do with a boxing match in las vegas where trump owns a casino no one knows, right? Well, what does this have to do with anything? And why is it, these guys are not illegal immigrants to the United States fighting here. They're being paid millions of dollars to fight here. So the idea that it has anything to do with the Trump wall is just silly. But 
Trump has become just the new way of virtue signaling. You just say something anti-Trump to show that you're a good person and that you care about humanity or some such nonsense. Um, but it has nothing to do with anything. And Trump should ask for a portion of the revenue from the fight because they're exploiting his they're exploiting his wall and his name in order to get ahead here. Okay, other things that I hate. So you know, earlier on in the program. We talked with uh, Fadi Al-Qadi, who's a Middle Eastern ad- advocate uh, in, in terms of human rights, uh, and he was talking, I, I suggested to him that Western countries do not have the obligation to actually bring in people who do not have a culture that matches that of, of the Western countries, and he sort of wrote that off a little bit or ignored the point. One of the reasons I say this is because of panels like this. So this is a panel that took place at some sort of uh, a Muslim, Muslim religious conference. Uh, it, uh, it was released, this video, by a hardline group called Hizb Ud Tahrir, um, and uh, this is two Muslim women talking about uh, wife beating and the, and the benefits of it. Three measures are recommended. Mm-hmm. You know, advise them first, mm-hmm. leave them alone in bed, and hit them. Okay. And if this doesn't work, and it does not bring the desired effect, then the third measure, which is permitted, I want to make this point very clear, that he is permitted, mm-hmm. not obliged here mm-hmm. or not encouraged, but he's mm-hmm. permitted, to hit her. So how do we understand? You know, this? and you know, mm-hmm. you know, subhanAllah, that's what a beautiful, you know, the uh, the blessing from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Mm-hmm. That he said not to take all the steps, you know, at one time. Yeah. It is one after the other. What kind of hitting? Hassan al-Basri said this means that it should not cause pain. Atta said, I said to Ibn Abbas, what is the kind of hitting that is not harsh? He said Hitting with a siwak and the like. A siwak? Yeah, actually, I got a siwak, you know, because I wanted to show that what siwak is. You know, it's a stick. It's a small stick. You know, used for cleaning the teeth. May I have the honor? Of course, yes. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, Shafi jurist. Oh, how charming. Yeah, it's just charming because you're just hitting with a toothbrush. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> so they say that they should only be beaten if they are caught committing sin. And they, they can't be beaten just for not cooking dinner. It's if you're disobedient to your husband, then you can be beaten. But they say, don't worry, we're not going to hit you that hard. It won't actually cause pain. Yeah, I'm going to go. These are obviously westernized Muslims. I mean, they're living in Australia, I guess. This is an Australian woman. He's talking here. Yeah, there may be some cultural differences that are hard to overcome. Uh, other cultural differences that are hard to overcome. Apparently, the United States uh, DOJ has now launched its first prosecution against a female doctor in the United States uh, for performing clitorectomies on six-year-old children in the United States, which is just a shocking and horrifying thing. Um, but unfortunately, that does indeed exist even uh, in the West. Okay. Um, you know what? Let's, uh, let's just go straight to the mailbag because we are running out of time. So... It is mailbag day. Yeah. So if you have a live question, now is your time. Okay, Steve writes, Ben, do you think the current turmoil in both parties ends the current two-party system? More specifically, do you think more people will turn to more libertarian representatives given the level of distrust people have with the current parties? So I think what will happen is exactly what happened with Trump. You will have outside forces that co-opt the current parties. I don't think that you're going to see a third-party rise, but I do think that you will see infighting within both parties for the future of those parties. Dylan says, hi, Ben. I was wondering how your parents' views differ from yours politically. Thug life. Well, I appreciate the, the shout-out. Um, uh, my parents' views on politics are, are very similar to mine politically. Uh, I would say that they brought me up, and then as I become more politically engaged and active, uh, they tend to listen to my arguments uh, and take them pretty seriously. So I wouldn't say that there's not a lot of gap between how my parents think about politics uh, and how I think about politics. Jillian says, hi, Ben. Another quick question. Angela Merkel once said, multiculturalism has failed. It seems that everyone except the intelligentsia sees multiculturalism as a problem. 
And why does the left love multiculturalism and diversity? When did this obsession begin? The left loves multiculturalism and diversity when they decided that income equality was more important than cultural decency. When the left decided that, then what they felt is that the culture that generated income inequality was a Western culture. In order to tear down that culture, you had to supplant it with a bunch of other cultures. So they were going to use the multicultural ethos in order to tear down the prevailing Western civilization. So they said all cultures are equal, all cultures are equally good, some cultures are even better than ours because they have less income inequality, and therefore, if we can just get rid of this horrible capitalist income inequality creating Western civilization system through multiculturalism. If we can force people into their own enclaves, if we can suggest that that those various cultures have just as much to offer or more than Western civilization, then the fundamental bargain upon which Western civilization is based, the consent of the governed and the idea that we all have inalienable rights, if we can get rid of that in favor of a multicultural ethos, then everybody will need a big powerful government to step in and assure income equality. That's where the multicultural ethos comes from, even though it may Makes no sense whatsoever. Cole says, Ben, could you explain what is the world to come in Judaism? So there's a lot of debate in Judaism over what Olam Haba is, the world to come. Uh, so basically, the idea is that after you die, uh, you are your, your soul is basically cleansed of all the schmutz that gets on it through the course of your life. Sin basically um, makes the soul that God gave you dirty, uh, not in a physical sense, obviously. Uh, and then you are purged of sin uh, by being forced to sit through almost a replay of your life and, and see, now that you have God's eye view, see all the sins that you created and why they were not worthwhile. And then there are a couple of different visions of Olam Haba. Um, you know, one, the, the, the stuff that's talked about in the Talmud, has people basically sitting around studying Torah uh, all day, um, and then there is the and then the, there's a, another version of Olam Haba that basically says that you become uh, one with God, that your soul goes back to God, and that's what Olam Haba is: is that you exist in God Himself. Um, you can't affect the world after you're in Olam Haba. Judaism does not believe in ghosts, uh, so you, you don't have any impact on the world once you're once you're done. Uh, there are prayers that specifically speak about the idea that. You can only do good things. The reason that life is important is because you can only do good things while you're here on earth. Um, but once you're not, you can't, you can't do anything beyond that. Um, but that, that's sort of what Olam Haba is, at least as I understand it. But I could be, you know, I can be filled in more if I'm getting this wrong. Fellow Orthodox Jews will write in and tell me how wrong I got that. Okay, Steve says, can you explain the problem with isolationism? I kind of think America can't be expected to police the world unless it is in its best interest. So the problem with isolationism is that isolationism assumes that our oceans are going to protect us from foreign attack. That has not happened historically. It did not happen in Pearl Harbor. It would not have happened with the Russians if we had not been aggressively combating the Russian influence across the world. Uh, It wouldn't it didn't happen, obviously, on 9-11. As the world shrinks, as it becomes easier for other countries' trade policies to impact us, other countries' foreign policies to impact us, other countries' militaries to impact us, isolationism becomes unrealistic. So, in principle, isolationism isn't the, the most terrible thing in the world, the idea that we'll keep to ourselves and we'll leave everybody else alone. But the fact is that the founders actually believed, they used this phrase, empire of liberty, to describe what the United States was trying to become. And... Our foreign policy was always geared toward expanding the ideas of liberty for more human beings. That doesn't mean that we sacrifice our own national interest to do so. It means that when it is in our national interest to pursue such activities, we should pursue such activities because the alternative is for someone else to fill that gap, become powerful, and then rival us. Uh, Joseph says, how do you think the media's inflation of the youth's political stance toward liberalism affects the rest of the youth and adults today? Now, I think the fact that the left media likes to claim that everybody in the youth population is a leftist 
it creates a feeling of inevitability that I don't think is real. Uh, and it will create an eventual backlash. I think you're seeing an emerging libertarian sense among a lot of young people who are sick of hearing that they're all Bernie Sanders acolytes. Zach says, yo, Ben, chicken or steak? Steak all the way, dude. Steak all the way. I unfortunately can't eat steak anymore uh, because I have like this, this weird esophageal thing that bugs me. But um, uh, hamburgers are the greatest thing that God ever created. Uh, chicken is, is not even a close second. Uh, Seth says, what will the mental health field look like in a free market healthcare system? Who will be paying for the physically and mentally disabled individuals? So, religious communities in the, in the prime. Um, but this is one area where I have suggested that the state actually does have a role in increasing spending on, on mental illness. Uh, you know, there are a lot of homeless schizophrenic walking the streets who are not part of any community and, and do not have anybody to take care of them and aren't part of any sort of religious community. Uh, and you know, my, my view has always been that when it comes to people who legitimately can't take care of themselves, there may be a role for government in that if the religious communities fail to take care of their business, which is why I, I always say that I advocate for religious communities to pick up the slack because otherwise the government will obviously attempt to, and they would have the right to if religious communities don't take up the slack. Austin says, who is the best superhero and why? Batman is clearly the best superhero, although there is a question as to whether Batman is technically a superhero. Remember, he has no superpowers, right? He's just, that's, that's the thing I actually like in the New Justice League trailer, uh, is, the, uh, is that line where, where the Flash asks Batman, so what, what's, your, what's your power again? And he says, I'm rich. Pretty much. So if you're going to talk about you know, other, other superheroes, uh, I do like The Flash. I think he's pretty cool. Um, I'm, I'm a big fan of Superman. Superman's still the gold standard, and you're never going to surpass Superman. You may notice that I'm a DC Comics fan. I'm not nearly as much of a Marvel fan, so I don't really name Marvel superheroes. If, the, the best Marvel uh, superhero, by the way, is, uh, is Doctor Strange, uh, which is a weird pick, but Doctor Strange is kind of awesome. Okay, Seth says... Dear Ben, I find I agree with most of what you argue, whether it concerns political or social, social problems, yet I can't bring myself to come to terms with your stance on marriage. I believe that millennial men are financially and emotionally safer if they remain unmarried. Can you make an argument without using pro-marriage cliches? Sure. Look at the polls of married people. Married men are significantly happier than unmarried men. Married men have significantly more sex than unmarried men. Uh, married men uh, are, are happier when they have a stable relationship with a woman. Uh, you know, marriage is a way of locking that in and ensuring that people don't cheat on each other. Uh, marriage, every study has shown that married people are happier. So it, forget about the, the cliches about um, you know, men completing women and women completing men, which is absolutely true. Forget about that. The actual data-driven analysis suggests that married men are much happier than single men uh, on virtually every measure. Gina says, facts don't care about feelings, but women do. How did you woo your wife? Ah, how did I woo my wife? So, one of the reasons that I love my wife so dearly is because, yes, I was romantic with my wife, but our first date consisted of a full-on three-hour discussion about free will and determinism. Our second date uh, was, uh, I believe, a, a date where we just talked about like TV shows that we liked, but our third date was about death penalty and gun control. So we actually discussed, <laughs> we actually discussed serious topics. Um, I'm very romantic with my wife. I buy my wife flowers all the time. I get her jewelry, but it's not just in material terms. I, I think my life goal is to, is to care for my wife and children and to care for my wife so she can help take care of my children. Um, thank God I'm in a position where I can pick up a lot of slack when she's at work, uh, and we take care of each other. And, and so, you know, I think the ultimate romance is taking care of each other. It, 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 there's, um, you know, people talk about love languages. So I think that the most powerful love language is, is task oriented, like taking care of things that your, your spouse can't take care of. Uh, when I was, when I was wooing my wife, she was studying for, for med school. Well, she was studying, she's undergrad at UCLA. She was studying for her medical classes. I would go and sometimes I'd just bring her dinner 
when we were dating. And then I would take off because I knew that she was studying. So she didn't have a car. So I'd just go get her dinner. I'd bring her the dinner. I'd leave it at her doorstep. And then I would take off because I didn't want to bother her. Um, you know, there, I, you know, my wife is spectacular. She's just awesome. So, you know, the fact is that we have a meeting of the minds on this. Uh, I saved my romance and mush uh, for my wife and my kids. Facts don't care about feelings in politics. Um, but, you know, facts do care about feelings, unfortunately, when it comes to relationships. Uh, and so you better trust the person's feelings with whom you're having one. Uh, Peter says, General Sherman once said the only moral way to wage war was to get it over with as quickly as possible. Do you think this is true? Yes, I do think that long-standing wars are of no use to anyone, that is why if you're going to enter a war, go in it to win it and have a clear exit plan. Okay, well, we will be back here next, let's see, Monday and Tuesday, our Passover again. So we'll be back here Wednesday, Thursday, Friday of next week. So try not to ruin things while I'm gone. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. We'll get to more on this in just one second first. Pure Talk believes in American values, and that free should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick-charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. Pure Talk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving.